0: Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. On August 12th, during the morning session of HFMA's Digital Annual Conference, our president and CEO, Joe Pfeiffer, presented CMS Administrator Seema Verma with the association's highest individual achievement award, the Richard L. Clark Board of Directors Award for 2020. Following the presentation, Administrator Verma gave a brief interview in which she addressed price transparency, new CMS rules around the pandemic, and the future of value-based payment. Today on this special episode of the podcast, we're sharing that interview. We hope you find it informative and interesting.
1: Good morning. I'm Joe Pfeiffer, President and CEO of HFMA. We are honored to have Thema Verma, Administrator of the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services, join us this morning. Administrator Verma oversees a $1.3 trillion budget, representing 26% of the total federal budget. She also administers health coverage programs for more than 140 million Americans, which includes Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, and the Marketplace. In this important role, Administrator Verma has prioritized empowering patients and transforming the healthcare system to deliver better value and results through competition and innovation. Under her leadership, CMS has supported the principle of price transparency and undertaken healthcare pilot projects aimed at facilitating the shift from volume to value-based care. More recently, as you all know, the agency has demonstrated regulatory flexibility, enabling providers to quickly adapt in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Prior to heading CMS, Administrator Verma was a health policy consultant and also served as vice president of planning for the Health and Hospital Corporation of Marion County, Indiana. She's a graduate of the University of Maryland and holds a master's degree in public health with a concentration in health policy and management from Johns Hopkins University. Administrator Verma, we understand you have many, many demands on your time and we thank you for being here with us today. As you know, HFMA has been an outspoken champion of meaningful price and quality transparency to empower healthcare consumers. We applaud your bold leadership in advancement of consumerism, innovation, and high-value healthcare, all areas important to our communities, patients, and consumers. Your focus on transparency is also commendable. We all know that increased transparency in healthcare prices and quality is paramount and we appreciate being able to engage you on finding the right solution. For all these reasons, HFMA would like to present you with HFMA's highest honor, the Richard L. Clark Board of Directors Award, which recognizes individuals or organizations for making significant positive contributions to the profession of healthcare, the financing of healthcare services, and the related benefit to society. So congratulations.
2: Well, thank you very much. And it's an honor and a privilege to receive this award and to be with all of you this morning. Um, had a long history of working with HFMA, um, even in my days in Indiana. Um, at the end of the day, it's always the financing people that understand really how health policy works. And I know um, throughout my years working on health policy that the HFMA uh, members have been just instrumental in, in guiding me in a lot of my policy work. And I remember all of you coming to meet with me in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. We talked about price transparency. So really appreciate this award um, and, and everything that your organization has done over the years to advance health policy. So thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you for your comments. And as, as a special treat for our attendees, um, Administrative Verma has agreed to stick around for a few minutes to answer a few questions. So if you if it's OK with you, let's jump right in. That's great. All right, so first, the big topic um, that is on all of our minds uh, in healthcare discussions these days is, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic, and CMS responded to the pandemic quickly with a wide array of temporary regulatory waivers and new rules designed to give providers maximum flexibility in managing their own responses to the pandemic. So with that in mind, and from your view, this is a two-part question. how have these regulatory flexibilities been received by the field? And then secondly, what advice do you have for healthcare providers that are continuing to grapple with the ongoing impacts of the pandemic?
2: Well, that's a great question. And first of all, let me thank all of the providers that are out there on the front lines doing very, very difficult work. And one of the things that's been really helpful for the agency is that ongoing communication. From CMS's standpoint and also from the role of the entire Coronavirus Task Force, um, one of the things that we hear the Vice President and the President say in terms of our response Um, is that this is something that is federally supported, state managed and locally executed. And so it's really the role of the federal government to provide support for those frontline workers and the states and local governments. And as part of that, really understanding from the healthcare community, what are the challenges that they're facing? What are the types of flexibilities that they need? Uh, We've had a really good relationship with our partners across the healthcare system and very early on in the pandemic, we set up calls so we could hear from people on the front lines. These are the types of things that we need anything from telehealth to just waiving some of the requirements around Stark and that ongoing conversation is really what's helped us put out these waivers. We also made the decision very early on that as uh, providers were coming in and asking for waivers, that we weren't going to just do one-offs. You know, we weren't going to give one waiver to one provider, and that when we did this, we were going to do what we call blanket waivers, and we've waived over 135 Medicare regulations, and we just did it for the entire country. And I feel really good about that decision because, as you know, um, we can never tell where the virus is going to go, but we know that when it hits a community that they're ready, that they have these waivers and these flexibilities, and so their focus can be on the patient and not on regulations. And it really does support a lot of the work that we've been doing over the past several years. The president from the very beginning was very clear about cutting regulations with his Cut the Red Tape initiative. And at CMS, we brought that forward with our Patients Over Paperwork initiative. And so really responding to the pandemic was just building out a lot of the work that we had already done. But I think you know, in terms of the advice that I would give to providers is Again, that participation in the dialogue uh, with us is very important. So, those of you that have participated on CMS calls or worked with national organizations to let us know what's going on in the front lines—that is so critical. That way, we can be responsive to the needs uh, for those on the front lines.
1: You know, as someone who's worked with CMS my whole career, you know, as a CFO before this, uh, my, you know, just the, the rapidity with which um, all that was taken back in the late winter was amazing. And so thank you for that. And in comment on the ongoing communication, I would just say our our staff has found um, your office to be really terrific to work with. And we, we appreciate that ongoing communication. So thank you for that. An important part of uh, the, the CMS's um, COVID response has been support for telemedicine. And while telemedicine is not new, uh, I remember talking about this 10 years ago mm-hmm. in my days as a CFO, it's taken a crisis to push us to this new frontier, um, as you said recently on Twitter, back uh, in July. In other words, the pandemic has been an accelerant, and mm-hmm. we see that in many ways. I share your belief that the pandemic has been an accelerant of longstanding healthcare trends and challenges in in many different ways. And so I have another two-part question based on all that. Um, Please talk about what CMS, CMS has done to reduce barriers to telemedicine during the public health emergency. And then secondly, in your view, what does the future hold for telemedicine once the pandemic is over?
2: Sure. Well, as we look at health policy from a broad perspective, one of the things that we've been focused on, or probably one of our most single most important focuses, is lowering the cost of health care. There have been all kinds of policy proposals, increasing access, rationing care. We don't subscribe to rationing care and instead of what we've been focusing on is what are things that we can do that is going to increase access to care and yet lower cost and create a more efficient system. And so we've been looking for those opportunities, which is why you see us focus on things like innovation, interoperability. But one of the things that really came to mind early on in the administration was telehealth. And that's part of our advancing innovation uh, strategic initiative to really look at across the market and what are the types of innovations that are going on out there that can help our healthcare system work in a more efficient way that provides better access and potentially lower costs. And so telehealth is actually something that the administration had been working on for a long time. Um, Even in 2019, we changed the rules so that providers could do what we call virtual check-ins Um, They could communicate with Skype, take pictures, uh, their patients could send pictures to them and they could bill for those services. And we started that, like I said, in 2019, but those were always brief interactions. The advent of telehealth was really an opportunity for us to push this even further. I think it's been a life-saving initiative. It's really helped our beneficiaries to be able to access care and yet be able to do that from the safety of their home. For providers that were already dealing with downturns in revenue, they weren't being able to do the essential surgeries, a lot of our providers had closed their practices, telehealth gave them that lifeline with their patients as a source of revenue, but also to be able to provide care. And it also saved a lot of the PPE that we knew we were having issues with early on. Um, and so now I think we've gotten to an era where both patients and providers have become more familiar with it. I think there was reluctance early on in the, pandemic, in the pandemic, but now over time people have become more familiar with it and hopefully it's going to be a mainstay. You know, the way I look at it is telehealth solves a lot of problems in our healthcare system, which is sort of my earlier point. Number one, it increases access. And for Medicare beneficiaries, that's particularly important. A lot of them just face barriers to obtaining care, whether it's just transportation, maybe they're not driving, maybe they're relying on a caregiver or family member to get them to a doctor's appointment. Um, and because of that, many of them not seek may not seek the care that they need. So this is gonna improve access. This is especially important in rural communities, but also in urban communities where we know we have a lot of traffic. Um, the other thing that it can do is across the country is it can increase access to some of our subspecialists or specialty care, which we know is in short supply in many areas of the country. So When they're going to have access to um, highly specialized providers, that can also improve the quality of care that they get. The other area that I think it's really important for is mental health. Um, As we look at the numbers, one of the more, uh, I would say, uh, where we've seen increased utilization is in with mental health services, where it works really well. We're also hearing from providers that they have a better sense of their clients when they can see their clients in their environment, whether it's a pediatrician dealing with a disabled child to be able to meet their caregivers, particularly in the case of mental health. It also um, sometimes reduces the stigma for people that may feel reluctant to obtain these services. So for many reasons, um, I think telehealth addresses a lot of problems in our healthcare system and can be an advantage for providers and patients across the country. So one of the things that we've been doing is allowing telehealth not only in rural communities, which is what Medicare had Uh, uh, historically restricted telehealth to. But we've also tried to get rid of barriers within the Medicare program. So a lot of our policies require face-to-face visits. So we've tried to get rid of those. Um, a lot of our policies don't allow all types of providers to participate in telehealth. So we've addressed some of that with physical therapy, occupational therapy. And then the other area is that telehealth isn't also able to be provided in different settings. So that's something that we've addressed as well. So for example, we've allowed for telehealth in nursing homes, which right now, um, as our nursing homes are struggling with the coronavirus pandemic, ha- being able to do telehealth inside the nursing home has been very critical. So from our standpoint, uh, from the president's standpoint with his executive order around telehealth, we're doing everything we can to try to make the uh, the benefit as permanent as possible. We just put out some new regulations that would identify the types of services that we'd wanna be able to continue in the Medicare program to be able to do those through telehealth or virtually. We will also need some help from Congress on this one. Um, we can increase the number of services, but it'll be up to Congress to allow for telehealth services to be provided outside of just the rural setting and to be able to allow our beneficiaries to do telehealth inside their homes. And finally, I'm very encouraged about the conversations that we've been having with private insurance companies as well. I think there's some recognition there that patients really appreciate having this option and providers like it as well. And so hopefully we'll see uh, more adoption, not only by Medicare, but also our private insurers um, governors across the country are also working very hard to make this a permanent benefit in the Medicaid program.
1: Well, there's, thank you that there's just so much there. We could talk for hours about so many of the things, uh, you know, my quick reaction is you know the more that we use it the the more that or the, the technology will get better the easier it will be to use but you mentioned mental health and you talk about the efficiency of of telemedicine um, there's just so many angles we could uh, go with this but i just really appreciate the the, the direction that uh, that you're taking us in anyway. and i won't ask you to stay for hours to talk about all the different issues <laughs> uh, i'd like to uh, and i would say the HFMA is always here to help and so um, if there's a way that we can help with this process going forward we'll be there for you I'd like to shift gears to something that is um, both an organizational passion uh, within HFMA, but a personal passion of mine, and that is consumerism. Uh, In our view, some stakeholders have been too quick to dismiss price and quality transparency as an effective tool for empowering consumers. Uh, We at HFMA believe that CMS's focus on transparency is directionally correct. Um, You've said in the past that under the status quo, healthcare prices have been about as clear as mud to patients. Um, HFMA has been promoting price price transparency for years, and I don't disagree with your assessment, and I've said as much in writing and on stage. With this award, we want to express our appreciation for your ongoing commitment to transparency. Even though we don't always agree on the methods and suggest adjustments, um, we appreciate the ability to comment, and we know that your team considers all of our commentary. In the CMS's final rule on Hospital price transparency, a hospital will be deemed to have met the requirement for posting charges for 300 shoppable services if it maintains a web-based price estimator tool that meets certain requirements. And HFMA has long recommended the development and refinement of consumer-friendly price, transfer- a price transparency tools, so we're in sync with all of that. What do you see as the potential benefits to consumers of price transparency tools? And then what do you see as uh, obstacles that remain?
2: Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for HFMA's leadership on price transparency. You all have been a voice on this particular issue for a long time, and we've appreciated the dialogue that we've had uh, with the association. It's been very helpful for us. Um, You know, as I said before, our focus is on lowering healthcare costs, but it's also about empowering consumers, empowering patients, and really allowing them to be the, the, being able to select providers on the basis of cost and quality. And so we've been working across the board to implement these market-driven approaches across the board. And part of that, obviously, is price transparency. I mean, I look at this just even as, it, from a patient perspective. At the end of the day, we're all patients. Mm-hmm. And nobody likes getting a surprise bill. People want to be able to shop around for healthcare, just like they do for every other service. And quite frankly, it's just not fair that you're expected to go into a doctor's office, whether it's getting a routine preventative services or getting an x-ray, that you don't have this information. And, you know, when people are, are sick and when they're going through an illness to deal with unexpected bills or to just feel powerless in the whole process is just not fair to the patient. This administration has been standing up from patient, for patients from day one. We are very much, we're not about special interest groups. Um, we're doing about what's right for the American patient. And price transparency really fits into this. The president feels very strongly about this, which is why we did the hospital transparency rules. And when you talk about some of the barriers, I think the barriers are the special interest groups and those that want to just keep things the way that they are. Um, And that works for them. It probably works well for a lot of uh, providers and insurance companies to keep prices hidden, but it really doesn't work well for patients. And so, like I said, we're on the side of patients. We're going to be fighting those court cases. We're excited that we won in our latest round, but we're going to continue to push on this. Um, You know, I do hear from some people, this is going to raise prices. There's going to be all these negative consequences. At the end of the day, people have the right to know what they're being charged for, and So we may see some changes in prices. I think prices will go down. We've already heard stories that when hospitals were forced to post their prices and a lot of them were unreasonable, um, some of them did come back. So I think you may see some moderation where prices sort of come to the middle. But at the end of the day, we all know that we're patients, whether it's us or our loved ones, and that we have the right to know that information. And I think at the end of the day, it's going to increase competition in the marketplace. And with increased competition, we know that patients always win. We want to get to a point where providers are competing on the basis of price and quality um, and that our patients are empowered as consumers.
1: Well, and and we've had ongoing dialogue with you and your office about just the role of transparency and the role of the charge master and how all this fits in, with this, in the spirit of trying to make things clear for consumers. And so, again, I appreciate the ability to have those ongoing uh, discussions with you. As we wrap up, um, I want to ask for your perspective on the state of the value transformation in healthcare. Uh, CMS has supported value-based payment for many years to a variety of pilot projects and other initiatives. And yet... So far, value-based care and payment models have not really met the expectations for bending the cost curve. They've really not taken hold in a material way. And now with the pandemic, value-based payment experiments are necessarily taking a backseat to more immediate concerns. So again, another two-part question. Uh, From CMS's perspective, Has the outlook and goals for value-based payment changed in light of the experience to date? And then secondly, what should the industry expect from CMS related to value-based payment going forward?
2: Sure. Well, first of all, I would say that the pandemic um, in some ways has made it more clear about the importance of value-based care. Those providers in the healthcare system that were accepting more capitation have fared better. Um, those that were heavily dependent on a fee-for-service system have been um, hit hard by the pandemic. And so I think the call to action around value-based care is even more critical as we move forward. Um, I think we all know and we all agree that a for service system just doesn't doesn't work well and as we're talking about um, empowering patients around pr- uh, price and quality transparency the third leg of that is also to be able to make it easier for patients to shop around and when you have more value-based patient that's easier. For patients. Um, But I would also agree with you that uh, the value-based transformation has been slow and there are a lot of issues with this. Um, I think that we're at sort of an inflection point with value-based care. We need to take a hard look at the models. I can tell you that the analysis that we're doing at CMMI across the board has shown that many of our models are not working well for the federal taxpayer that we're seeing a lot of losses. I think a lot of that was the way this was started, not necessarily a wrong or a bad approach, but I think we wanted to encourage providers to participate in value-based care. And so the models were set up with that goal to increase participation as opposed to making sure that the taxpayer was getting the best deal. And so as we're delving into these models, um, we're seeing that that hasn't always happened. Quality has been, some cases has been, we've seen improvement. Um, but we know that these have not always gleaned positive financial results. That being said, we're not giving up on this because I don't think a fee for service model is going to be sustainable for our country over the long term. If you talk to any American, um, one of the things that they're very concerned about when it comes to health care is health care costs. So, we have to figure out how do we create a more sustainable system that continues to provide high quality care, um, that provides a type of innovation that Americans um, appreciate, have come to account on, and expect from their healthcare system. And so, I think the way to do this is when you are paying providers on a value-based system that really encourages them to think about the type of innovative care that they need to deliver to increase quality and lower costs. Telemedicine is actually a great example of this. If we were paying providers in more of a value-based system. My guess is the adoption of telehealth would have been more rapid many, many years ago because um, providers recognize the value. They can do some of this work online. It's faster, it's quicker, it's probably cheaper for them to some degree. And yet it's been the fee-for-service system that has held them back. So I think that value-based care definitely is where we need to go as a country That being said, I think we're at an inflection point. We need to really think about these models. I don't know that it works well to just allow providers to be to, um, you know, we've had a lot of voluntary models and I'm not sure that that works well because that sets up a selection bias that only the providers that know that they can do well are participating. So I think we have some very difficult decisions um, ahead for us around value-based care. But I would just say that this administration is committed to that journey and moving to a different system that provides um, high quality care, but is also affordable for the country and allows for sustainability for the Medicare program, the Medicaid program and improves access for all Americans.
1: Well, and there are, to your point, there are examples around the country of of uh, the provider community um, being at risk and making quicker adoption of things like telemedicine, and, um, mm-hmm. to your point. And so, you know, it's interesting if, you know, sometimes we're quick to judge things like this, but that's what experiments are for, right, is to mm-hmm. learn and adjust. So I appreciate your sentiments there. Uh, last open-ended question. Do you have any closing thoughts for healthcare finance leaders?
2: Well, like I said, really appreciate the great work that you do. Um, You know, at the end of the day with healthcare, when I think about policy, I always think about obviously patients, how does it affect patients? Um, But, you know, the financing of healthcare is so critical. And so the work that you do is important. It definitely informs policymakers. And again, just appreciate all the work that you're doing, not just running in day-to-day operations, but helping us think through the policy implications. So just thank you for all the work that we're, that you're doing. I know this has been a difficult and tough time for healthcare leaders across the country. And um, we're hopeful for a vaccine. Operation Warp Speed is going really well. And hopefully we can all work together to get through this pandemic.
1: Well, we're hopeful as well, and, and it has been difficult, but we're still smiling. And so, um, well, this has really been an honor for me personally, for, for our association. I just want to thank you again uh, for your leadership and for spending time with us this morning to discuss these really important issues that are facing our industry. So thank you.
2: My
0: pleasure but, to be here. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our director of content strategy. Our president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Doing so will help keep you informed about the latest episodes and get us noticed by new listeners. And as always, if you have any questions or ideas about what you'd like to hear, you can reach out to our team at podcast at hfma.org.